The Spectator Economic Innovator of the Year Awards, sponsored by Investec, are open for entries. If you are an entrepreneur-led business bringing radical change to its sector, please apply at www.spectator/innovator. We are looking for entries all across the UK, and our closing date is the 4th of July. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and my guest this week is Wendy K. Persig, widow of the writer Robert Persig, who's the author of, at least according to Wikipedia, the most best-selling book of philosophy of all time. And that is, of course, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, and its follow-up, Lila, an Inquiry into Morals. Wendy has produced or edited a new book called On Quality, an inquiry into excellence, unpublished and selected writings. Wendy, welcome. Thank you. Well, I must start with the obvious question. I know it's not such an easy one to answer, but when he talked about quality, what was your late husband trying to get at? Ah, uh, that that was the that's the question of all his writing and and the the new book also. So I'm unlikely to be able to put it in one sentence for you, or even a 30-minute interview. But that doesn't really matter, because anyone listening to this conversation doesn't need an author or an editor, such as I've been, or anyone really, to, uh, to define it. What I think my husband was, what I know my husband was trying to get at with the use of that word is to get all of us to think about what and feel what, how, what quality means to us, what it, how it operates in our lives. And it doesn't really derive from anybody else's ideas. It's, it's inherent in all of us. And both of his published books went on at length to explain why that's true. He used it interchangeably many times with goodness or excellence or positiveness. And he went on to explain how it, it, it uh, crosses up with uh, terms in Greek philosophy and in Buddhism for other terms. But it's, it's really something that we know. And what, he's, what he did in his writing was really invite us to be aware of it and, and use our awareness more. I mean, there is that, that there's a, in the many extracts in this, this new book, there is sort of fascinating bit where he goes down to the, the roots, because he's looking at ancient Greek arete, isn't he? Yes. And this RT root, yes. <laughs> he says, <laughs> comes in everywhere. And yes. that he thinks this is sort of proto-Indo-European concept that's come down to us, but has been a little bit occluded by, I guess, various rationalist traditions. Yes, that's, that's it. I mean, he, he was fast. I mean, he was in, in college, he was a philosophy major. So he was fascinated when he began thinking about quality as, as, a, um, as a source of other things. He became fascinated with thinking how in, in elsewhere in civilization, others might have been on the same path. And, and, and on, on the same trail, in both in the East and in the West. Yes, he's interested, isn't he, in that, that the way in which Eastern and Western philosophy can be kind of, that's apparent sundering. Yes. Can be yeah. re, reintegrated. Yes. And many, of, many writers have explored this. It, it, it's, you know, it's, 
religious and philosophical exploration, I think, gets into many, the paths cross many places. It's just, it's, it's human questioning, human exploration of our own experience. And so humans have come up with the same answers over and over and over again, and use different words. So he's trying to kind of put it back with this word where it isn't, it, it isn't commonly used in, in Western philosophy or Eastern philosophy, but it's used in our lives. And so he's saying, hey, think about it. Think about how, how, we, how it feels. Think about how you're working with it all the time and then string it up into the meaning of life. Yeah. I mean, he, he's said, if I understand it rightly, and this, this new anthology has a very good kind of way of circling this issue, that it's something... He says, you know, in most Western philosophy, you've got a kind of subject-object divide where, you know, there's you and there's the thing you're experiencing. And his, his notion of quality, if that's right, is, is sort of something that, that occurs before that divide happens, that essentially the experience and what is being experienced are kind of the same thing. Yes, yes. Yes, we have... We, it's a human process to intellectualize and, and use our minds. We've, we've evolved that way as a way of survival. But it can be a bad habit if you're really trying to connect with the essence of, of reality. And Eastern philosophy and some um, mystical traditions in Western philosophy have worked with this idea too, that, it's, that it's pre, there's kind of a pre, pre-awareness connection that we have with truth or with love or with... Which is kind of pre-linguistic as well, isn't it? Yes, that's right. That's right. It's, it's there for all of us, and it's been there in all the religious traditions. But it's difficult to put... It's difficult. It's impossible to put into words. And so and I'm, I'm not a philosopher at all. I'm, I'm an editor and an archivist. So I'm, I'm way out over, over my skis, you know, in talking about this at all. Other writers have, have gotten at it in, ver- in all the religious traditions much more eloquently than I, than I, I can. But, but that's what my husband was up to in his books. And that's why I, I sort of put together this little small volume to kind of, uh, to, 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 kind of to invite people, really, to, re- to revisit it, to, to invite people to try it out some more. So it's more a kind of primal or a taster you were thinking of rather than that there was, if you like, unfinished business in the archives that you felt, you know, needed to be brought out. Right. People, people who have read my husband's published, previously published work really won't find anything, any new concepts or new revelations in there. Um, there are some archives that have never been published before, so they might, from a history point of view, be interested to see that there were some informal writing that he did in, in 10 or 20 years, well, 10 years for sure, before Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance came out. And then they could go, hey, this is what he was jotting down years before. And they might enjoy that. Um, but there's nothing, there's nothing new. This is just an invitation to revisit yeah. in a new way. And, I mean, what, one gets a sense reading that, that obviously this anthology covers many years. You know, I mean, as you say, there's the material when he was jotting and starting to think as a philosophy student and so forth. And then there's passages from Zen, passages from Lila, you know, later, later letters and lectures and things. I mean, was, was he one of those writers who had like one central idea, this metaphysics of quality, that he just 
worked on and around all his life? I mean, was it like this one big idea? Yes, yes, that's all he ever did. That's, he only wrote two books, and he might have written more if he, had, if he had had more that he really wanted to put out there. But this, this was his, before he knew he was going to write a publishable book, this was the idea that he wanted to work with. And teach, when he started out as a college teacher, it, it was where he started working with it. As he wrote in Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, when he was in, teaching in Montana, he started, he went, hey, this is, this, is a, this is where I'm going with my students. I mean, you may remember the story that, that he, you know, the, the kids in his classroom were coming to him saying, how, how can I get an A? And, and, he, and asking him for, for a reply that would allow them more, more easily to get good grades. And he thought about, well, what, what is it that, that they want out of me? For, you know, I can't, and and then that, that's what got him thinking about, well, it's quality. He, there's no one formula in, in college writing, in, in, in university essays. There's no one, one formula that will get you an A. So students, why don't you just work with quality and see what, you, what, what, what your own sense of quality will bring you when you, when you write. So that's where he started, and he just thought it was a world-changing idea. But as I've said, or as we said at the beginning of this, it, it's not an idea. It's, the, it, it's what we all have, and that's, that's, that's not world-changing. That's what we've been working with. And, what, and in Lila, he goes into, well, it's not just humans that work with it. It's all living creatures. In fact, it's even atoms and molecules. So this was the one idea. I guess that's what it is. This was what he wanted to write about, and he never really wanted to write about anything else. But people who have, you know, one big idea often become kind of monomaniacal. You know, that can be kind of difficult. What was, what was Bob like to live with? Was it something that was He was pretty monomaniacal. <laughs> Although, actually, yes, yes and no. I, I, wrote, I, I wanted to work on this book, and I think he never really would have done this book the, the way I, I did it. But I began wanting to work with it because he, as he got older, he was less interested in talking about it informally with people. And yet he was frustrated in that I think people lost track of it. They, they remembered the story of the motorcycle and they remembered the narratives of the book because it's hard to grab onto this notion of quality and keep it so he he got he didn't talk about it all the time it, 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 he, he didn't talk about it all the time and after a while you know he was in his late 80s when he died so he he knew he wasn't going to write anymore and he never particularly he was an author who didn't like to write so it he, 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 he didn't leave behind volumes and volumes of unpublished writing about other things, really. I mean, when he was, re- when he was really young, he, he practiced writing like, like many, many people do. It, it, so there really wasn't anything else. And yet there, there were, the, the, as I've said before, the, un, un, the informal writing about quality that he had left in his, in his, just in his files that I was able to play around with. Actually, I was playing around with him even when he was still alive. And I would ask him things about what, what he had thought about what he was, or things that weren't clear in some of the writing. And I had that advantage and interest in putting it together in a volume this way. Although I never, I never really thought of doing it until, until after he had gone. He had a, an agent, Lynn Nesbitt in New York, who once suggested putting together a volume about, of, of his quality quotations from the two books. 
And that was easy enough to do by having, having it on my computer and just searching the word. And then just pull, grabbing, grabbing out quotes that kind of hung together a little bit. But when I found unpublished work, talks that he had given and the transcripts of talks that he had given, then, it, then there, was, there was something to put together there on this theme that he, he probably, I don't think he'd be too mad if, if, he saw, if he saw what I did. Probably be pretty zen about it. But uh, <laughs> that first book, and, you know, it was such a phenomenon. I mean, I think the story, and I think it's, it's, it's in this book, that he, and it was rejected by 121 publishers. And he had been kind of almost forced to write it. You know, he, he couldn't stop himself working on that big idea. I mean, what was his view looking back on this thing that was rejected, was rejected, was rejected? He'd written it kind of slightly monomaniacally, you know, driven his his marriage to his first wife to the brink. He was absolutely possessed by this book. He produced it, and then it became this astonishing bestseller. I mean, you know, every every bookshelf in the mid-70s had a copy of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance on it. Did he, was he disconcerted by that? Was he gratified by that? Did you look back on the book and think, oh, I wish I'd done it differently, or I wish people would stop coming up to me and saying, you're the motorcycle guy, aren't you? I mean, how did he look oh, he, back he on was, that book? He was very gratifying. It was very gratifying and, and remained so throughout his life. I mean, he, he, he did what he wanted to do with it, and it was such a surprise and shock. But he was, he was very, very happy with, it, with how it was received and... Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's, that's a very simple answer to give you for that one. For that yeah. one. <laughs> I mean, I think the, the things that he had trouble with were um, that, that others in the arts and other fields have had trouble with is, is the overnight acclaim. And in Lila, he wrote about celebrity in, in just a passage of Lila, how difficult it is. He had Robert Redford as a character in the book who's, you know, who has made films about the, the, the nuttiness that happens when you're super famous. And how, and he, he actually, Bob, my husband, really wanted to talk about that craziness of celebrity in terms of how he was working with quality, the different, different levels of quality and the static forms of them and that sort of thing and where, where a celebrity fit with that. And he really regarded celebrity as a, as a difficulty. Uh, he was a, kind of a re- retiring person anyway, had, was shy, and that was a, that was a problem of the, the success of the, of the first book. But he, was, he, he would never have taken, taken it back. He was very glad it came out that way. I mean, in Lila, he obviously thought that there was some unfinished business with that, that book. I mean, I think it's somewhere, and here we may head off into the philosophical woods again, but the, the difference between static and dynamic quality... Oh yes, yeah. so so thank you, thank you for circling around on that because yes, he was very happy with the book, but he, he but he realized what was not being covered, and what he we, which he worked his way back into with the second book was uh, well, I, I I think the question that popped up in in conversations with people who had read it was well, why why do people disagree so much about things that have quality? you know, flavors of ice cream or films that we've seen or, you know, you name it. We, we disagree with about it right away, sometimes forcefully. So why, why should that be? And that led him to, to, work, to work into the second, the second book. And, and with, with great care and pains, he lays out a system to explain that. And, and the static and dynamic uh, terms that, he, uh, that you just alluded to don't appear in the first book, 
in, in that way, and he really worked. He really worked it in the second book, because it, it's once you get into ideas of quality, then you have disagreements and and hairs start to split. And and he ex, he explains why that is. It's because it's the static language that falls out from from quality. It falls out from any 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 discussions, any terms, any ventures that humans have. There 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 is the static aftermath of quality. So what is dynamic quality? Then you, you have to talk about both of them in order to talk, to talk about one of them. And dynamic quality is the wordless quality. And so how can I describe that? And so it, it, it loops back to the first book because the first book was really about dynamic quality. It's, the, it's God, it's spirit, it's love. Many religions use, use these terms and try to approach them and it's difficult. It's dif- difficult to have a conversation, but but we, but there again, I, I just come back to say we all know. So what is it that happens? And this is this is really why why the the on quality book is an invitation to 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 read or reread the other books, particularly Lila, because it's in Lila where he really lays out static quality, static forms of quality. And how how he visualized a way of of working with it. That's, that's kind of culture and morals and traditions of justice and so forth that are kind of downstream from yes, if you like the the raw dharma or whatever it is of the dynamic quality. Yes. Now, one of the odder decisions he took, and it's a really, I mean, I'm sure is is as you suggest, a part of their success. But to present these philosophical ideas, he dramatized them. You know. Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance was a novel, or a sort of quite a memoiristic novel, but a novel nonetheless. You know, why do you think he did that? And you know, was it was it a successful way of getting across philosophy? You think? I mean, yeah, he he did it very consciously, and it was a a, a way to make it easier for people to absorb the ideas. I I think he knew that he could have gotten a PhD and and written a thesis about quality as a without any stories. But he, he wanted more people to read them. He wrote Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance initially about motorcycle maintenance and with no story and wrote, the, wrote a whole draft of it. Had, had actually started to approach some of these publishers with it before he took the trip, the motorcycle trip with his son. And, the, and then when he came back and started looking at it, he didn't think it was successful. He didn't think it had much impact. He thought it was terrible writing. And he just threw, you know, put it aside and started all over again and started working with, from the point of view of this, this person, this character in the story, talking about his past as he rode his motorcycle across the country, you know, the way, the way he laid that book out. And he, he felt like it had a lot more impact, and his editor did too. So, so he, he that that was really sort of his method of that was his method, and that's why he that's why he really never attempted to write a book such as On Quality became, because he was just kind of nah people people don't want to read it people won't want to read it <laughs> and maybe people won't want to read this either I don't know I think some people will some people who will, will will remember the appeal of of the ideas when you can kind of grasp them and how he worked that into the stories. They might, may find it useful to come back to this other book and see it pack, basically the same, the same deal packaged differently and go, oh, yeah, that's what he meant. Yeah. Now, now, his son, as you say, plays a huge role in that first book. And his son died, I think, before you came into his life. But 
can you give me a sense of how that affected him as a writer and his worldview? Did it was it, did it sort of stop him writing? Yes, yes, and no. He he was well into Lila writing Lila when his son died, and. This was like a um, random stabbing, wasn't it, or a mugging or something like yeah, that? It was a, yeah, it was a street mugging, right. And, you know, it was, it was, you know, tragic, obviously, and shocking and unexpected and devastating. And it was, oh, I've forgotten now how many years before Lila was published. It was a long, long time, even though he had really intended... <clears throat> it was, it, it, yeah, it was in the early 90s when, the, when Lila was finally published. It took from... From well, 1974, when the, the first book came out, Chris died in 1979, and I and I I knew Chris. I mean, I I he he was I, I met him a number of times before he died. Fortunately, I'm sorry, I might have got the timeline wrong there. <laughs> I apologize. Yeah, that's okay. That's all right. It was all in the 70s, and then all the so so throughout the 80s, he was my husband was really grappling with uh, writer's block. On, on Lila, I mean, he just had a terrible time writing it, and and it the difficulty really stemmed from Chris's death. I mean, it, it the emotional impact of Chris's death. So he, he you know, it was uh, as many people who have experienced tragedies know, it, it's hard to get back into gear. Um, you're just stopped short, and that that did happen to him. It, it was responsible for the for the delay in in Lila coming out. And can you tell me a little about your own relationship with him? How did you first meet? Yes, so, um, sure, gladly. And Lila, so the characters in Lila are, are completely fictional, and, but he and his first wife had bought a sailboat immediately after the first book came out. And then their marriage broke up. So my, my memory and my experience of, of marriage was entirely on the sailboat because we lived on it he had left Minnesota, where, where he had lived. The children were, the two sons were on their own by that time, or in school. And, and we, so we met, we met sailing. I wasn't much of a sailor, but I got convinced to live aboard a boat, a 32-foot sailboat. <laughs> and Must while, have been love. While he, while, while he worked on, while he worked, uh, on, his, on his second book, and that was, that was what... My, our first years together were like were, were a typewriter and a boat. A typewriter on a sailboat. A typewriter on a sailboat. Yep, yep. This was all uh, just before personal computers, way before the internet, and uh, it was it was different. But that that so that was that was that was how we got started. That was how it initially began, and we we traveled. We had uh, we we sailed to we sailed to England. So that we we crossed the Atlantic on the boat and had, had an awful time with that, but once we got to Falmouth and we loved Cornwall and had one, <laughs> we were happy to be in, in a harbor there and had had a wonderful time there. So that that's that's what how how we started. That was this, our our initial life, and then we had a daughter, and after that we kind of packed up the boat. Can you that that's like the the boats, the motorcycles. There's kind of seems to be such a strong sense, which maybe goes back to this point about quality being something that's that's pre-linguistic and intuited and not about thinking, but about experiencing. I mean, his whole thing seemed to be about, you know, 
doing things with your hands and handicrafts and fixing things and making things. I mean, is that something that was, you know, sort of made him happy throughout his life? I mean, to, like after he stopped publishing, was he, I like to imagine he was pottering in a garage, you know. Oh, yes. Tinkering with things. Yeah, that's right. And, and actually, when we got the boat, we, when we finally moved into a house in New England, we put the boat in the backyard, you know, up on land. And so that he could have all his tools handy and fix things on the boat. So, yes, he always had a home mechanical area with all of his tools. And, and On Quality has a lot of photographs of them, which was kind of a fun innovation which the publisher came up with. But let's, I, I had mentioned, I think, that <clears throat> I was downsizing and it eventually sold the tool collection, although uh, some of it went to the Smithsonian Museum of American History along with the motorcycle in D.C. There's a lovely uh, shot of the motorcycle in the book, actually. Yes, yes. But I was talking with the editor of On Quality about preparing the manuscript. I said, oh, I've got all these tools. And he said, why don't you take some pictures? And so a photographer, David Lindbergh, took the pictures that appear in the book. And it was, it's very much in keeping with, the, with your question, because that was the tools really... He didn't write about maintenance a lot, other than in the Zen book, but he... It was definitely part of his, his life all, all the way through, all the way through. And this, I mean, to circle back, I suppose, to this, this question of, of the celebrity, the, the kind of titanic effect of that book. I mean, did he have, like, groupies? Did people roll up on motorcycles saying, you wrote the book that changed my life? Oh, among, among readers? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was just a happy uh, side effect of the whole thing. And... He, you know, he, I mean, he didn't really connect with them personally because he, he just lived, lived alone and we didn't tell people where we were and he wasn't really interested in that. But it was, it was always a, a satisfying thing that people were enjoying the book. I mean, it never, even though he was, he was really mostly interested in this one idea and this one word, it didn't bother him that people toured the West following the route of, of the, the the motorcycle trip had taken and and actually the in the in the book they you know the the travelers Bob and Chris and his, the friends the Sutherlands went to uh, Bozeman Montana and met some friends Bob and Jenny Deweese the artists and they they were real people as were the Sutherlands and so we we stayed in touch with them always and visited the visited the Deweeses in Montana and and always enjoyed hearing from the Deweeses that people would drive into their, would find out where they lived and drove into their homes and said, is this, are you the people who, <laughs> who, had, who were in this, that scene of that book? And they, they got a kick out of it and we did too. So it's, it's fine. It's, it's good. <laughs> and on the academic side of things, I mean, because I know obviously people who write popular works of philosophy often cause snarling and smitting among academics. How much were Bob's ideas kind of taken seriously and accepted in the philosophical community. I mean, did they, did they have an impact? Are they, are they kind of lodged there? I, not too much, no. I, and, I, and I think that's really the downside of having published them as, as literature and novels and fiction, because the, the academic world didn't naturally pick them up. They weren't, it, the, the, the way that academics, and I'm not an academic, I don't live in that world, but I think they have a formal way of of, of exposing each other, and, and philosophers have a formal way of exposing each other to each other's ideas. 
and these, these, this idea just didn't track that way. It came into a different world. Uh, it came in a different way. And whether, whether academics, I mean, there have been academics who have enjo- enjoyed both books and they carried on a correspondence and so forth. And it was, uh, but, but it's not, not, a, not, there were not a lot of them and it, has, it hasn't really influenced Western or Eastern philosophy a great deal. Did he mind that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It bothered him no end. Uh, and, and we used to t- we used to talk about that too. He and I and I said, you know, people don't need philosophy to for quality to be in their lives. And he said, yeah, I know, I know. You know. In other words, we're we're all we, we're we all living every word of both of those books all the time, but we just don't we're just not conscious of it. And and similarly, <clears throat> most people are not philosophers. You know, there are, there's a small segment of society, which uh, maybe some of whom are listening to this interview, who read, study, pass exams, get degrees, write philosophy. And, but it's not too many people. Me, people go through their lives just fine without any philosophical ideas or any religious ideas. And so that's just the way it was. But he, yes, he wanted them. He wanted them too. He wanted lots of, lots of academics to have their their uh, thinking upended by this this concept, and I, you know, maybe it'll happen sometime. Yeah. Well, this is a start. <laughs> Wendy K. Persig, thanks very much indeed for your time. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for listening. I very much hope you enjoyed that podcast. While you're here, I'd just like to say in the spectators' books pages this week. You can also find Sarah Wheeler reviewing Anthony Beaver's magisterial new account of the Russian Revolution and Civil War, Craig Rain on the diaries of Edna St. Vincent Millet, Horatio Clare looking into Andrew Skull's account of the history of psychiatry, and Lynn Barber on Anna Wintour, and Kate Wormsley asks whether Bill Gates is right about how you prevent the next pandemic. You can find all this and more if you want to subscribe to my weekly books newsletter, which emails you every week to tell you what's in the new pages at www.spectator.co.uk forward slash emails. Thanks again. See you next week.